end of a series where we were studying the book of Colossians, and actually it was the end of a summer series where we were talking about the journey of prayer. I hope that uh, that was helpful for you. I hope that as they often said in the churches we were in in Africa a couple of weeks ago, let's not just be hearer of the words, but let's also be doers of the word. That maybe God inspired you this summer to explore your own journey of prayer. And hopefully last Sunday, maybe God challenged you to explore what is the community that you've built around you? Is it a community that is built around the sense of mission that God's given you about your own life? And are these people that are poisoning that mission, or are these people that are empowering you on that mission? So if you weren't here last Sunday, I encourage you to go back and read that. If you were here last Sunday, I hope that's been a good journey for you. But I want to say something tonight about the new series that we're going to be starting next Sunday. Uh, we're going to be studying the book of Joshua this fall. And we're going to be talking about the key marks of gospel-centered leadership and how do we as leaders walk in that. And then we're going to be talking about the key fruits of when we lead uh, out of gospel-centered leadership. And the reason I believe that God's leading us to this study on leadership is because I believe that this Sunday and next Sunday is a page-turner season for Midtown. I believe this summer we saw the end of a chapter for Midtown being at the old Rocket Town building and what we've done for the last seven years down there. And that uh, this summer has been a preparation for a new season that God is calling us into as a community. And so I want to take some privilege tonight, um, and I'll try not to move my arm. I know that kind of wigged some of you out last week. But I, I won't even do it in fun. The collarbone is healing nicely, thank you. Uh, not without pain, you'll hear a little bit about that in a minute. But I want to take some privilege and talk to you about Midtown Fellowship. Because there are some great things that are happening here. One of, I think, is community. If we went around the room, I think we would find people in this room that believe with me that the Bible teaches that my level of understanding the gospel, embracing it, and experiencing in my own life is equal to the level in which I've committed myself to true gospel-centered community. That gospel-centered community is absolutely vital to the life of a born-again believer. That I need that because without that, I'm limited in my ability to see Jesus and see him working in my own life. And some of you in this room would say, man, let me tell you, I came to Midtown, I didn't understand that, and you're experiencing that. People that have invested in your life, people that have said, I want my name to forever be written into your story. And some of you would say, hey, I've experienced that and have benefited from that. But I also want to say that there's a bunch of you here in this room would say, I've not experienced that. That if we had to take the temperature of our community, and I'm talking to us family, is that some of you have not experienced that. Matter of fact, some of you experienced just the opposite. That some of you would probably say that Midtown is a place where you don't feel connected, where you feel like you know people in this room, or people know you. Some of you might even say that this community, this church, feels like a very lonely place to you. And your experience here hasn't been walking into gospel-centered community. It's been just the opposite. And the reason I want to acknowledge that is because let me tell you what's going to happen over the next month. I believe we're going to move back to Sunday morning. 
and we're going to move back into Rocket Town's new facility, which is amazing. The college students are going to come back in like the tour de force and pour into this room. And if you feel like you're unknown now, guess what you're going to feel like in a month when you're surrounded by a bunch of people from Iowa that have been here for three months. Yeah, some of you uh, feel lonely in this room because this community has hurt you. Some of you uh, feel distant in this room because somebody in this room, or me, has offended you. And you've lived in your hurt, and you're stuck in your hurt. Some of you have broken relationships in this room. Some of you have experienced a bad experience with somebody in this room, and they're sitting on this side, and you're sitting on that side, and you come to church praying to God you don't bump into each other at the coffee pot. Some of you have made mistakes, and you feel like that the people in this church are judging you. I know. How do I know that? Because we're community, and all that's in community. If you don't believe me, let's just talk about your family for a minute. Do I need to illustrate that? I don't think so. Yet Jesus says in the midst of Midtown Fellowship, where some of you are thriving in community and some of you feel lost and forgotten, Jesus says, love one another. He even says that the way that you love one another is going to show the world that you belong to me. So in the rejoicing and in the pain, God's commandment is the same to all of us, that we're to be on a journey of loving one another. That's what Jesus said. So that's community. Let me talk about, about worship. Because this summer's been kind of weird in these uh, very comfortable, cushy chairs where you guys get so comfortable that getting a chuckle out of y'all is really difficult this summer, you know, or trying to get responses. It's been kind of hard. And it's amazing because some of you would say that the worship here at Midtown, man, this is a healing experience for you. That when you come here, the teaching and then the music and the different things that we do from our congregational meeting this summer all have been amazing for you and have helped you grow in the Lord like you've never grown before. Some of you would even say that our communion service is probably the closest time you ever feel to Jesus. That it is profoundly powerful in your life. Some of you have had that experience, I know, because you've told me about that experience. I've had that experience, man. There are times when I'm serving communion and Dave could tell you this too, and so can the other communion servers. There are times where I have to turn away from serving communion because I can't hold it together. God seems so close at that communion table. Uh, I remember one Sunday where I said to God, you've got to back up because I, I got a job to do here. Because it was just so powerful. It wrecked me. I mean, you want to talk about standing on holy ground. That's true. But I also know that there are some of you in this room that just don't get it. That you come to church, and there are a thousand distractions here. I mean, from the fact that maybe you didn't get the right coffee before you came in, and Starbucks had a long line, and you had to choose between, do I get coffee, or do I go get it to church on time? Which we know getting here on time is a high priority for everybody. <laughs> right? Thank you. That there are a ton of distractions from the way people are dressing, to the chairs are too comfortable, or the chairs are too uncomfortable, or the chairs have this weird smell to them. I know, those plastic chairs. That the PowerPoint may not, may not be working right. 
that the music is too soft, the music's too loud, the music's too slow, the music's too fast. I don't like that song because that's the song I heard when she broke up with me. Or whatever the case may be, that there are a thousand distractions that when you come in, it's what's the flavor of the week? Anything and everything that keeps you from engaging. And it's hard sometimes, I know for some of you, to come here and you feel like you can never engage. It's like, oh, I want to plug in. I want to get this Jesus thing. I want to understand what he's talking about, but I just don't get it. And some of you just don't like me. That's okay, because sometimes I don't like me either. So you're in good company. Yet, in the midst of this room where some of you, this has been healing, and for some of you, you just have a hard time getting it. Jesus says, shout for joy to the Lord. Jesus says to us as believers that we are to be a worshiping community, that the mark of our lives should be a community of people that are quick to raise their hand and give glory to our King. It even says in 1 Peter chapter 2 that the very purpose for our existence as those that have been called from the kingdom of darkness, I'm not going to move my arm, but have been called into the kingdom of light so that we can give praise to the one that did that. That that's why we exist, to give him praise. And Jesus said that should be the mark of our community, whether you're distracted or not. That's what Jesus said. But there's a challenge, isn't it? It's a challenge. And then finally, you know, I think about us going back to the city. Why are we going back to the city? <clears throat> it has been clear from the beginning that the campus, this campus, downtown, is our mission field. There are about 6,000 people that live downtown, and that number is growing every year. But there are about 50,000 people that work downtown from Monday to Friday. Eight to five, the population of downtown increases by 50,000. And there are thousands of students that come from around the world to be a part of this education system of our city. How are we going to reach them? How are we going to be Christ to that world? How are we going to be a light on a hill to that community of people? How will we say we will embrace the mission God's given us as a congregation? I, I don't know. That's a challenge. We'll see. But this I do know. And I want you to hear this because I genuinely love you guys and I love this community. Midtown, in this season of the chapters are turning, in this season that the pages are turning, this is an epic time for our community. And the first thing I want to challenge you to do, we have got to take ownership for our community. You've got to take ownership. That you are the church. If you are born again, if you are in Christ, you are the church. Not me. This isn't Randy's church. This isn't Dave's church. This isn't the Sessions church. You are the church of Jesus Christ. It's his church. And we take ownership by saying, this is where I'm going to live out my faith. This is where I'm going to live out what it means to be a Christ follower. To take ownership for this community and care about what's happening here. Care about the people that are sitting around you. Care about the new face that comes and sits next to you next week, even though they may be a freshman from Iowa and they're still struggling to cover up that zit on the side of their head. Two. Not just take ownership for this community, but guys, each of us needs to take very serious the call that God has placed in our lives. Each of you have been uniquely gifted. Each of you have been uniquely wired. And God has placed you in this community with your gifts and with the calling that he's placed on your life. And he is calling us to put down our excuses that we've worn for way too long 
and put them aside and now walk in the calling and the giftedness that he's called us into. And then finally, I think it's time for us to lead. Oh, let me try to explain this. I know that in a lot of leadership corners, people say not everybody's born to be a leader. Okay, that may be true, and maybe not everybody's a leader. I don't know if that's true. But for the sake of our discussion, I want to say I think everybody in here is a leader. Everyone in here needs to take a leadership role in their lives. They need to take a leadership role when it comes to your role in a community like this. You need to take a leadership role when it comes to your own moral life. You need to take a leadership role when it comes to your gifts and the gifts that God's given you. And how will you use those gifts? How will you use them to bring glory to Him and celebrate Him? You need to take a leadership role when it comes maybe to your family. Or maybe even to your community. Or maybe to the things that God's calling you to lead. And so because of that, we're going to start this series in Joshua on the marks of a leader and the fruits that come from those that dare to wear the marks of a leader. Does that make sense? Y'all tracking with me? So, with all that said, before we can talk about Joshua, we've got to tip our hat to Moses. Because Joshua and his leadership was born out of the shadow of Moses. And it's a beautiful thing when, uh, when we look at Moses because, man, what a leader. Turn to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 34. It's in the front part of your Bible. You're going to go through Exodus, Numbers, then Deuteronomy, and it's the very last chapter. Listen to what they say about Moses. Verse 10, 34, 10. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those miraculous signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials in his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all of Israel. What do you hear when you hear that? No one, no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all of Israel. Man, when it comes to the story of leaders, he stands at the top of the heap. <clears throat> Here's a guy who not only did awesome things, but awesome things were done through him and his leadership in a crucial, pivotal season of the history of the world. I mean, think about it. We were talking about this last week when we were cruising down the Nile River, that uh, his life, Moses, started in a little basket going down the Nile River, which is a miracle in and of itself, that he was not only found by someone who wasn't bound by law to turn him in and have him executed, he was found by the daughter of Pharaoh who could bend law to her own uh, pleasure, and she took him in, and he spent 40 years in the house of Pharaoh as a prince. Then he spent 40 years as a shepherd because he decided he was going to take things into his own hand and he killed a man. He ran for his life and learned how to take care of sheep and raise a family. There's a lot we could say there. 40 years as a civil rights leader, a rescuer of his people, coming into Egypt and demanding that Pharaoh let his people go. He was the guy that was there when the 10 plagues hit Egypt. 
He's the guy that was there when Red Sea parted, you know, they held up the staff and the sea parted and the uh, Israelites came through. He was the guy that was there when manna started to fall from the sky because the people had complained that they didn't have any food. And he went to God and God said, Moses, go and tell him I'm going to give him manna. He was there when the cloud by day was over them to keep them from getting sunburned and there was a fire at night to keep them warm. He was the guy that came down the mountain with the Ten Commandments. He was even the guy that glowed after he'd spent time with God. And he was such a scary figure that they had to cover up his face because people were terrified of being around him. He was the guy that struck the, the rock and water poured forth out of the middle of the desert. I mean, this guy had a resume. So let me say this up front right now. It would be really easy for us to slip into the mentality of thinking that if we put on the leadership traits of Moses, if we could be like Moses, if we could study his life or Joshua's life and we could find the things that marked what made them successful, then we could put those things in our own lives, then we would be successful. Or better yet, if all of us did that in this room, could you imagine what this city would be like if all of us rose up as mighty leaders like Moses? What Midtown would be like? We would be such a happy place, it would be ridiculous. We would be a good, good, good church, right? Well, that's a huge mistake. You know, I've asked uh, Dave to come and join me up here on the stage. Come on up, Dave, because I thought it would be fun for us to go back to something that David said, uh, gee, what was it, three weeks ago, Dave, when you preached? And... Uh, Come on, man. There you go. Move it. Uh, I thought it would be fun for me to engage with Dave because the trap is for us as a community of people to believe if we have the right leader, if we have the right leadership, if we have the right pieces to the puzzle in place, then there's no end to what we can achieve. And it's really a trap when we begin to think about and talk about leadership that we think that somehow or another, if I can just get the right stuff in my life, it's going to be okay. So I thought I'd ask Dave to come up and chat with us some about last, well, it was three weeks ago when you preached. You talked about a thing called willingness and willfulness. And I think it applies here. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yes. I will try to talk and just a little bit about this. Uh, no. Um, yeah. I'm going to read something, I guess. Um, that I think would support what Randy has just kind of laid out for us um, and then maybe make a few comments and then he can ask me some questions. But um, I would say that, that most of our lives, and I think uh, this idea, willingness and willfulness, is, those are not my terms. They're terms that I borrowed from this book uh, that are just helpful uh, to kind of put some things in perspective uh, so that we can understand how we actually function. Um, and I would challenge you to think that um, what Randy has described in us looking at Moses, that we, we tend to do this um, with almost everything in our lives. I tend to see something that I um, admire or I want or I want to be, um, and I tend to set my eyes so firmly on that thing uh, and become so fixated on it that it becomes the object of my desire, um, and I try to and spend countless amounts of uh, energy trying to actualize myself, make myself into that thing because I believe that that is the thing that is going to actually satisfy me. So um, 
one of the ways uh, this guy, Gerald May, kind of describes this, and I think, uh, I hope, or I believe this will hit home with you guys. He says this, he says, as a society, um, we are convinced that if we can only learn enough, become strong enough, and work hard enough, we can impose peace and fulfillment upon ourselves and upon everyone else. But the actual condition of the world in our own hearts refutes this. So we've kind of bought into this idea, but when we take a good, honest look at the world around us, uh, we realize that all of my effort, all of the things that I'm uh, working so hard to attain, to make myself strong, the knowledge that I'm trying to gain, that I really ultimately, I don't have the power to impose peace, uh, fulfillment, wholeness, all the things that we see God even doing through characters like Moses and David. Something else is needed, he says, some source of inspiration, some reservoir of power, and wisdom beyond that which is provided by our own personal wills. We need something that can balance willfulness with willingness, something that can temper our harshness with love. And in the context of what I talked about, uh, which was Paul being imprisoned and why didn't he ask to be prayed to be released from prison, it was, uh, I was using willfulness and willingness to really highlight the fact that what God had done in the life of Paul is, is he had created a, a deep willingness that was represented by him saying, Lord, I trust and I have embraced what he describes as the mystery of Christ. And therefore, however you want to do what you are going to do in my life, I am willing to participate in that, to embrace that. Uh, a willful approach to life, uh, as I described, uh, was that, Lord, I, I desperately want to see you work in my life, and here's exactly how I want to see you work in my life. I have specific ideas, uh, parameters, limitations, uh, ways in which uh, I want to see you do uh, what I at least lie to myself to believe I want to see you do for your glory in my life, which is really ultimately my glory in my life. And so here's the ways. I'm, will, I'm willing you to work in my life in this way, but when it comes to willingness, uh, ultimately I'm not that willing because uh, there are very, very strict rules and, and uh, areas in which uh, I'm I'm unwilling to see you work so so really uh what you're talking about is who's who's working in our lives is, are we the ones that are working and if we're working we need a bunch of tools or is jesus the one that's working mm -hmm. if i'm working then i am uh i'm willful i'm going to will something into existence so better teach me how to be a good leader so i can accomplish something mm -hmm. if i'm willing then jesus is the one that's working and i'm simply uh the one that's following where he's leading is that what you're saying Yes. So what is it, if, if I am willful, we talked about this earlier. Thank you for agreeing to that. That would have been weird, <laughs> wouldn't it? No, dude, I, where not, did you get that? That's insane. I am insane. Un unwilling to acknowledge whether I... <laughs> Follow me, brother. And uh, so if I am willful, what tends to be the, the goal of what I'm doing? We talked about this earlier today, that what... what when I'm willfully saying, God, I'm going to take control of my own life, so I better get the resources I need to get, what is it I'm typically driven to get? Um, well, it would depend on, um, and this is, again, acknowledging the fact that uh, 
you're, we're presupposing something here, which is, is I want God's will for my life. His, what he wills for my life, not what I will for my life. When I am living a willful life, uh, my life is marked by things like um, mastery of something. Um, it's marked by things like control. It's marked by things like manipulation. And uh, I, am, I am trying with everything I can to gather into my stable of experience and wisdom and knowledge the things that I need in order to create what I will for my life uh, and bring that into a reality. Um, so willfulness is, uh, is quite different than that. Uh, if you want to use terms that can mirror one another, it would be the difference between mastery and mystery. Um, I'm willing to embrace the mystery of how God is going to reveal uh, his purpose for my life and even the ways that he's going to use me in leadership, let's say. And I'll go on that journey with the Lord or and now I have a pretty solid idea. Uh, here are the things that I need to gather and I need to put those things into action in my life and then I will, in fact, be useful to the Lord. So, so if, if somebody is sitting in this room and they have a situation in their life that is creating uh, a lot of pain in their lives, I can't think of anything, uh, you know, and something that they don't want in their lives, and all of you have that, uh, how does a willful, or let's go, how does a willing person understand what you just said in the context of the fact that maybe there's somebody on the other side of the room that's been lying about them? and taking advantage of them and put them in a situation where their friends don't want to be around them. Does that make sense? Yes. Uh, <laughs> simple kind of answer. Because no. I swear I didn't say that about <laughs> you, dude. And I, no, but it's true what I said. No, I'm kidding. Will you ask me the question again now that you joked with me? I think I lost it. ADD. This is like two ADD people <laughs> talking, isn't it? It's sad. So if somebody is experiencing a situation in their lives where maybe they haven't found community or they feel lonely or maybe they're struggling with something like depression or something's in their life they don't want uh, or maybe there's something here that they don't want, how does a willing person, how do, how do you see that if, if I believe that the Lord is the one that's leading my life? Yeah. Uh, a willing person um, literally believes this and that is, is that everything that's happening in my life is something that the Lord is bringing into my life in order that he would reveal uh, himself uh, and move in my life. Uh, it's, it's a fundamental stepping into that trust and saying, okay, Lord, um, and it goes against some things. Uh, May talks about uh, the happiness mentality is one of the three mentalities, he says, is, are a byproduct of a willful life. The coping mentality, which is God is just something uh, that, is, is kind of in my life to help me cope with the difficulty of my life, kind of get me through hard times. The happiness mentality is, is that I've, I've literally bought into the idea that God wants me to be happy, that that is the goal of my existence. And so, therefore, anything, such as the person who's talked behind my back and uh, hurt me or wounded me, uh, that, that couldn't be the movement of God in my life. Because God wouldn't bring something painful like that into my life or allow something difficult in my life um, to, in order to woo him or woo me unto himself in order to reveal himself. Uh, and so I, I literally, because I've bought into that in a willful way, his will for me is happiness, then I would have absolutely no eyes to even remotely perceive anything difficult as being uh, not just from the Lord, but in fact even a gift from God 
in order to draw me unto himself. Uh, therefore, massive amounts of our lives are left in, kind of on the, uh, the roadside of existence as um, like unusable events by God in order to teach me, in order to lead me, in order to guide me, in order to call me unto himself. And so a willing life, uh, and don't get me wrong here, I, I've struggled with this because it doesn't mean that your knee-jerk reaction uh, is still not, hey, that hurts. Hmm. It doesn't mean that you're, um, oh, that's awesome. Uh, I just got my arm blown off uh, by somebody. Collarbone. Collarbone. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, God, what are you doing? It doesn't mean that... Um, that you won't struggle with the emotions of that in the moment. Uh, a willing person, though, and a person whose willingness is being birthed in, uh, that will not be the habitual place that you live out of. Over time, with, with some, some comforting from the Lord, you will finally, your heart's posture will turn and say, okay, Lord, I'm open to seeing what it is that you want to show me about yourself, and I'm I'm ultimately not going to change my theology about the fact that I believe you are good and are for me, like Philippians talks about. Uh, I'm willing. Thank you, Dave. That was awesome. And I, I hope that makes sense as we talk about leadership because we can easily begin to think that the traits that we're going to talk about are kind of like, you remember the, uh, the story of King Arthur? where he pulls Excalibur out of the stone, you know, and now, you know, the gods had willed that he would be the one to draw it from the stone, and now that he's got it, he's, how, what he does with it is what matters. And a lot of us believe that, that God has given us gifts, he gave us salvation, and now God steps back and goes, what are you going to do with it? And so you better get good at it, which is willful. And Dave is saying to us, no, whoa, 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 stop, man. Christ is present. Let's be willing to follow wherever he may lead. So let's take a look at Moses just for 10 minutes, and let's see how we draw out of that at the beginning of this journey of gospel. Because, you know, it's an odd thing if Moses was standing here today, even though we hold him up as this great leader, I wonder what he would have said about himself. I think Moses would have probably said, well, I led a group of people that were always grumbling. They were always complaining. They were always complaining against me. They were the people that, when I took them out to the desert, remember what they said? Why did you bring us out here to the desert and to die? At least in Egypt, we had food. These were the people that were fighting Moses against him, and he was trying to get them freedom. The very people he was fighting for freedom for were the people that were fighting against him. <laughs> so what do you think he would say? Even his own inability to enter into the promised land was because he lost his temper. And he hit the rock that produced water, and then he hit it again. And we'll talk about that later, but God said, hmm, sorry Moses, you're not getting into the promised land. And if you read the end of Deuteronomy, Moses' final farewell to his people, the Israelites, was a song. He was a songwriter, and he wrote a song. And you know what the song was about? You're a bunch of rebellious, stiff-necked people. And when I die, you're going to get even worse. God be with you. See ya. I'm going. What's up with that? See, Moses was a light. But he wasn't a shining light that existed for us to see the light. It was a light that was shining somewhere. It's kind of like when you go to a play and you see the people on the stage and the light is shining on them. We don't turn around and go, wow, let me look into that light. We look at what the light illuminates. 
And what's the stage that the light illuminates of Moses? It's the fact that one greater than Moses was coming. That Moses wasn't enough. That as hard as Moses tried, as willful as he was, he could not produce the rest for Israel, R-E-S-T, the rest for them that God had promised through the promised land. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 3. Let me show you something uh, about Omo. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. What's going on in Hebrews is, is uh, the writer of Hebrews, which many believe were Luke, was Luke, who was actually in prison with Paul last week, if you remember. Well, he wasn't in prison last week, but you remember when we were story of last week. And uh, he's comparing Jesus first to, uh, to angels, and then he's, preparing, he's uh, comparing Jesus to Moses. And he's trying to say to his writers that both angels and Moses were spotlights that illuminated that one greater than angels and one greater than Moses was coming. Therefore, holy brothers, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your eyes, or fix your thoughts on Jesus. His very beginning in this passage is saying to us as a community that Moses is not the subject of this story. That there's one behind Moses that's a greater subject than Moses. Now, I don't know if you've ever been uh, to a basketball game, but when the fans are just crazy, like at the Vanderbilt Stadium, it's really a lot of fun to go to a game, especially when they're playing a big SEC team. And when, like, one of the Alabama guys goes up to the foul line and they're getting ready to shoot, and the fans just go nuts behind the, uh, the, the basketball goal. You know, they're just going, you know, they're waving all those flags and those things that are clappers, you know, and all that stuff. And they're trying to distract the person on the foul line because they know that if they can distract the person on the foul line, their chance of actually succeeding and getting something through the net is pretty slim. And that's what the writer of, of Hebrews is saying to us right now when we think about Moses, don't get distracted by Moses. Matter of fact, your thoughts should be on the one that Moses illuminates, which is Jesus. You know, and it's funny because we do it all the time. Like, it's so easy. Like when, uh, when I broke my collarbone in Africa several weeks ago, I had the fortune of being with a team of people that had spent two weeks just in, in the trenches with Jesus, man. Every morning, the Lord had just been meeting me and just pouring truth into my life and just speaking to me in ways that I haven't heard him in a long time. And, man, he was bringing up in those early, early mornings some insecurities and doubts in my own life that I thought I'd put behind me years ago. And the Lord was bringing them up, you know, underneath this mosquito net in this little five-by-five five room in northern Uganda and saying, get up, because I got stuff to tell you. And so when he knocked me off that van and he broke my collar, which I believe he was the one that did that, it would be easy to be distracted by the collarbone. But there was a story behind the collarbone that's greater than the collarbone. But you understand that. I mean, some of you are going to go to jobs tomorrow that you don't like. It's an easy distraction. Some of you are married to people tonight that you don't like. That's easy to become a distraction. Some of you are not married tonight, which you don't like, which could be an easy distraction. Some of you are not married and you love not being married and your love of not being married could be a distraction tonight. Anything, everything becomes a distraction. And the writer of Hebrews is saying not just to us about Moses, but us about everything in this community. 
Don't let what Dave just said, when he said that, that our pain sometimes becomes the very purpose of our lives, don't let that become the distraction. There is a story behind the one that is leading our lives and the author of salvation. Let's keep reading. He says, Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess, he was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of a greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Simply put, the writer is saying, Moses may have been a servant in the house, Jesus is the one who built it. In other words, Jesus is telling his story. This last week, I had, I wish every one of you could have been with me at Jason's Deli this week. Is Jason here? Is he here? I don't think he's here, because they have too hard of a time getting here. But some of you may remember Jason, who sold the homeless newspaper outside of Rocket Town uh, at the downtown campus. Do y'all remember that? Does some of you know Jason? Jason, they have a hard time getting here. They don't have a car. I say they because Jason has a woman in his life now. Melissa. She is very nice. And he called me and he said, would you meet with me at Jason's Deli? Because he works right there at the corner at Jason's Deli. I go and meet with them and I sit down with them and I say, so why are we meeting today? And they smile and they hold hands and they look at me and they say, you're our pastor and we want you to marry us. I'm like, wow. All right, so tell me the story. And they interpreted that as, tell me your life story. (laughs) Which I do wish all of you could have been there because you could not have pulled me away from that table with a thousand horses because it was tragic. Both of them, their stories are just like, I'm crying in Jason's Deli hearing the stories. I am. And it easily became the distraction unless I heard this song. Jesus is so good to us. We belong to him. And he's brought us to each other. You see what I'm talking about? You see what this is talking about? Jesus is building a house. And later in this passage, he says, you're the house. You're the house that he's building. This is the work of Jesus. What's bugging you to no end? Seriously. What is the tragic story in your life that would bring tears to me if I heard it? What's the tragic story in your life that you think is so stupid that you don't tell anybody because it's so ridiculous, but it still hurts you to no end? What is it? Guess what? There is a story behind that. And there is one telling a story into that that is greater than the pain that you're experiencing. Verse 5, Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what he said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house. If we hold to our courage and the hope which we boast, if we hold to the hope which we boast, and let me say this, in, and I'm, I'm finished, okay? Our hope in the hard stories of Midtown Fellowship, in what God is doing in this place, in our ability to come and say, Lord, I'm not going to be willful. I'm going to be willing because it's you that's working in this community. It's you that's working in my life. Our hope is not in Randy being a dynamic leader. Our hope is not in Midtown becoming the church of your dreams. 
our hope isn't that the people sitting around you are going to be everything that you hope they will live up to be. Our hope is in a different place. Because when our hope is in a different place, it gives life to the other places that fail to give us hope. Even when they're really, really close to us. Colossians chapter 1, verse 26. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to you. To you, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. And what is this mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's Christ in us. As believers, he's our hope. He's present. He's the one that's working. Christ is working. And do you know how much fun it is to believe that Christ is present right now working in me, working in you? When we were in Africa, I'm going to use up all these Africa stories, all right? Until my collarbone gets better. Uh, we all knew that there's something funny about Africans. Well, it's not funny, haha. It's funny like odd. All right? And that is that they love uh, calling on people spontaneously to teach. Like, we need testimony. Uh, and so we all went there with this reality that any moment of any day in any place, an African could point at us and say, get up and teach which could be terrifying, right? Unless you completely embrace it. Because when you embrace it, then you're like, I'm ready because Christ is with me. Get that. I'm ready because Christ is ready and he is in me and he's my hope and he's my glory. Which kind of made it kind of fun. But kind of think about that in your own life. We're ready because Christ is ready. And when our eyes are on him, it takes our eyes off of us. When our eyes are on us, it's easy to take inventory and become afraid and say, I better get more stuff to be prepared. But when my eyes are on him, now I'm saying to him, because he's already prepared, you got all the stuff, I'm willing to go wherever you want me to go. Does that make sense? Are you tracking with me? Because we serve then in faith. In Titus 2, it says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope. What does that mean? When I put my eyes on Christ, it doesn't mean I do nothing. It means I give myself to everything that he says, Come and follow me. Everything. That's our hope, is that Jesus is the Lord of Midtown. He calls us to his own community. He strengthens. We pray that he gives us strength that we would use our gifts. We pray for courage that we would be able to lead as he leads us. Because we believe he's the Lord. And when that happens, guess what? We start telling stories that are bigger than us. And our lives become about something more than just me. I'd like to give you an illustration of that. Uh, but I, wanna, I want you to hear what we've said tonight. I want it to sink in because some of you don't believe what I've said. Because some of you uh, may be saying, I still despise the struggles that God has placed in my life right now. I don't see them as doorways to come to Jesus and say, I'm willing to go wherever you call some of you are yet to believe that this place can be a safe place to find community. 
Some of you have yet to believe that God's calling you out to use your gifts in this place. Some of you have yet to believe that uh, God is calling you to walk into that journey that he is in you. That we're not prepared, he's prepared. We're just prepared to follow. So I want to give you an illustration of that. And I want to give you an illustration of that uh, through the life of one of your own. But before we do that, uh, I'd like for us to pray and sing a little bit to prepare us for it. Would you do that with me? Okay, let's pray. Father, you know, it's just so much easier uh, if you just tell us what to do. This whole journey of just believing in you and following where you go, it just seems so irritating. Because we don't know what the next step is. The light that you give us for our path doesn't illuminate the next 20 years. It just seems to illuminate the next step. But I thank you, Father, your purpose in that is that you don't want us to ever forget that your hand is what leads us. That your presence in this world is your love for us. And that you are sufficient to meet all our needs. And when you pour yourself into us, we are changed forever. And our story becomes bigger than us. Help us to see that, we pray. Help us to receive that. Help us to believe that. In Christ's name, amen.